This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Keith Kroc. And I remember calling back to my mom in Ohio, and I go, hey, mom, we sold Razda. And it's like, uh, well, did you make money? I go, ma, I don't have to work anymore. And we had two phones in the house. I would always hear my dad click in upstairs when my mom was talking. And he goes, I guess this means you're moving back to Ohio. My dad goes, Elda, I don't think he's ever moving back. How a kid from Ohio was groomed to leave GM, and then how he left it all behind for a startup in Silicon Valley. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so imagine growing up in the Midwest in the 1960s. The automobile industry was pretty much everything. And the big three, Ford, Chrysler, General Motors, these companies were at the peak of their power. Back then, General Motors alone was one of the largest companies in the world and one of the biggest employers in the U.S. In 1955, GM made history when it became the first American company to pay more than a billion dollars in taxes. Imagine that. So you could also imagine that when a young Keith Kroc was handpicked for a prestigious summer job at GM, it was like the biggest thing ever for him. That job came with a scholarship for college and then a fellowship for grad school. And before he knew it, Keith was on the fast track to management, even hobnobbing with the CEO at the fancy country club. Keith was basically being groomed to head the company one day. But then, just before he turned 30, Keith Kroc decided to quit that life at GM and leave for Silicon Valley to lead a tiny startup. And as you will hear, taking that job turned out to be a huge mistake. But Keith stuck around in Silicon Valley, and he went on to take leadership positions in three successful companies, Razna, Ariba, and then DocuSign, which was a pretty big leap for a kid that grew up in a suburb of Cleveland working as a welder in his dad's shop. My dad had a five-person machine shop. He used to answer the phone. Uh, I, I remember Litco Industries Steel Fabrication Division, John Croc speaking, director of sales, how may I help you? And then to get off the phone, I go, Dad, there's only three of us in the factory. He goes, that's right, Keith. Never let him come into the factory. <laughs> and and who was his who 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 were his clients? Uh, it was General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, or as he called it, Generous Motors. Hmm. And and was his business successful? Uh, in in his terms, it was. Um, it it never got over five people. His dream was always that I go off and get an engineering degree, and we would build it to a big company of ten people. And so you, as a kid, you grew up. Going there and working in the factory. Yeah. So, I mean, since the age of 12, I worked there every summer. I worked there every weekend. A lot of times I'd go after school. So, you know, started off as a welder and then eventually worked up into the uh, to the big machines. So you went off and did an engineering degree, I guess. I did. So I went off to uh, Purdue, which he dearly loved because Boilermakers, that was his uh, favorite football team because he would always have a boiler maker after uh, work a beer mm-hmm. and a shot, and um, 
uh, yeah, but General Motors came on campus my sophomore year, and uh, they gave a full scholarship to uh, a female engineer and and a male engineer, and a great summer job. So, so that was it. So General Motors basically said, "We're going to sponsor your education." In exchange for coming to work for us for some time. Yeah. And, and you know, my dad's philosophy was you save money for three reasons. One is for your, for your home, for your family. The second is for your retirement, as he would say, so you don't have to mooch off your children. And then third is for your children's education. And you would always mortgage the first two for the third. So when I called them up and I said, hey, General Motors is going to pay for everything, including a living stipend, books, tuition, everything. Um, he goes, well, uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll send you to one of those graduate schools. And, uh, and then my senior year, I got accepted to Harvard and I went to the GM guys because I wanted to get involved more in the management side. And uh, they said, we have a... a a fellowship, which is the same as the scholarship, but we're going to pay a half salary. When I told my dad that, he goes, I don't think you're coming back to Litco anymore. <laughs> so you go to do a business degree at Harvard. GM's pay- pays you to do this. Paid everything, every wow. expense plus half salary. So I was the guy who bought the beer. Yeah, I bet. So you graduate with a business degree and presumably you go work for GM. Right. And and I have to imagine you're on the fast track there to be in senior management, right? What, right. what was your what was your job there? So, you know, I would work there in the summers, and my first job there, I was a production foreman, uh, second shift chassis line uh, in, in Detroit. In Detroit, yeah, for Cadillac, and I had thirty of the biggest guys you ever saw working for me, and. This is this, when you are still a student. That's still. That's when I was nineteen. That was the first um, summer assignment. So when I graduated from business school, um, I was I was really interested in robotics because I had done a, a second year project at Harvard on the utilization of robotics in the Japanese auto industry, and um, I went to my sponsor, who was VP of the manufacturing staff. I said, you know, I don't know if I want to come back to General Motors because there were no there was no strings attached or anything. Hmm. And he goes, well, what are you interested in? I, I go, robots. And he goes, well, we have this super secret uh, development at our research labs at the GM Tech Center. We don't know what we're going to do with it. And it's the most sophisticated robot technology in the world. I go, I'll take it. Yeah. And uh, a few months later, I was I was back in New York, which is where they have the board meetings, and uh, I presented to the General Motors board that we should get involved. General Motors should get involved in the robotics This business. is like the early 80s, right? This is the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah, this is like 1981, 1982. This is the time where people are saying Japan is going to take over the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, I made that presentation. I said, just like there was 100 automotive companies, um, you know, 80 years ago, and it narrowed down to three at the time. And uh, I said, we should get involved in the robotics business. And they said, okay, let's do it. I couldn't believe it. And Roger Smith was the CEO. Mm-hmm. And then they said, how should we do it? And, and I, then I said, can I come back uh, the next board meeting? The second time I said, well, we should join venture with Fujitsu Fanuc from Japan. Now, all these board members, at least uh, I think all of them, were World War II veterans. Wow. And so to partner with the Japanese, they're you know, they were kind of shaking their heads, but they gave me the green light on that. And, and you were like in your mid twenties? Yeah, I was I was twenty four. And um, But to the to these probably these old board of directors, these trustees, you were like this kid who who knew this the zeitgeist, you knew what was going on. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget um, I go back to the GM Tech Center in Detroit. I place a call into Dr. Naba, who was the CEO of Fujitsu Fanuc and the founder. Uh, and we talked through a translator, Miss Ando, and, and she said, um, we will be over there in two days. So Dr. Wow. Naba shows up with about 11 of his lieutenants. Um, he comes to the Tech Center. I'm in the robot lab. He comes walking in. And, you know, everybody's going, Where, where's Keith Kroc? I go, well, that's me. It's like, you know, here's a 24-year-old guy. And, and were you, how much were you authorized, do you remember, to spend 
on this thing? Um, we didn't really worry about it <laughs> okay. at, at the time. Wow. So um, money was no object. Uh, I knew it wouldn't be a problem because they were enthusiastic about uh, getting into it. And, and, and I knew we, we wouldn't have to spend a lot of money up front because Fanuc already had big manufacturing facilities where they were making robots with robots. It was literally <laughs> wow. lights out um, manufacturing. And so we were we were talking, and I said, "Yes, we'd like to do a joint venture with you, and it's going to be fifty one forty nine, fifty one GM forty nine GM." Uh, he said, "Well, how many successful joint ventures do you know that are fifty one forty nine?" And uh, I said, "Hmm, none, because I've really never heard of the joint ventures before." <laughs> and uh, uh, he goes, "I think it should be fifty fifty." I go, "Okay, fifty fifty." And then he goes, I think the name should be FGM. And I go, ah. Then I told him that would not be a good idea. <laughs> so so you do this joint venture and that's the beginning of the robotics assembly line at GM? Uh, that was the beginning of GMF Robotics, which became the industry leader. Um, hmm. We put GE, IBM, and Westinghouse out of business. So at that point in your career, and this is uh, still the early 80s, right? Right. In your mind, did you think – I'm going to be a GM lifer, maybe even the CEO one day. That was uh, that, that was, it was always in my mind because um, you know they always track the high potential folks. They had to keep you moving um, at General Motors, and I, you know I had experienced everything from the raw raw factory floor to the uh, and then to their famous technical center. So yeah, things were tracking tracking pretty good. I mean, that, that was like the equivalent of, of being at Apple today. It was the biggest company, and it was the blue chip of blue chips. It was. So you're in your late 20s, rising through the ranks at GM. People presumably had their eye on you, and you decide to not just leave GM, but to decamp to California to join a startup. Why? What What was going on? Why didn't you just stay and rise up the ranks. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things is that um, with GMF Robotics, we were selling a lot of robots to the disk drive manufacturers out in Silicon Valley. And um, I could kind of see what was going on out here. So it kind of fascinated me. Uh, that was one thing. And, uh, you know, as much as I love the automotive business, I, I end up loving the high tech business even more. And, and then it was time for me to move being the youngest vice president at GM, um, they they wanted to keep me moving. So I'm right at that crossroads, and it was right before my 30th birthday, and I'm going, you know, I don't know if I, I really want to do this. And, um, and actually, I had a great mentor uh, at the time. Um, his name was Don Peterson. Uh, he, was, he was CEO of Ford Motor Company, hmm. and... Um, you know, he just took a liking to uh, this young GM guy that was no threat. He, he gave me a lot of wisdom. And I remember when I decided, you know, I think I want to go out to Silicon Valley. Hmm. Um, I was terrified of telling him because he's like, you're going to be CEO of General Motors someday. We would go to the country club they belong to. And there you see Roger Smith and Lee Iacocca. Wow. And all the CEOs back then. And, uh, and when I told him, that I'm going to Silicon Valley. He goes, good for you. You know, I think if I was in your shoes, I'd probably do that too because the chance of becoming the CEO of a company of that size, it can be a crapshoot. And there's all kinds of things that can derail you. Plus, you might have to leave a blood trail, you know, up to the top. And, you know, that kind of put spring in my step. But everybody else thought I was crazy. I'm sure they did. What was the opportunity that was so exciting in Silicon Valley when you were 29 that to make you leave this comfortable, safe job at yeah. GM? Yeah. Well, the one thing that I learned in the robotics business was that even though everybody just thought it was a mechanical arm, the real key was the software. And I thought that was kind of the, the way of the future. So um, I, I met a, a, a CEO and it was a company that – um, it was in the software business, come be the number two person, and then eventually uh, be the number one person, probably within you know a couple years. 
And so just um, describe they were they were making software, which is back end right technology for, for that would service that would service it would be like um, production tracking inventory okay. control. I got you. And and the other big thing was that IBM had invested uh, pretty heavily um, in it, and they were a great partner. So I have to assume that you were like the salary that they offered you was was a lot lower than you were making at GM, uh, but, but probably they offered you a piece of the company, which which seemed attractive. You're you're exactly right. I mean, compared to the money I was making at General Motors, it was a fraction of that. But but there was a lot of stock. And and were you? Did you have a family at that point? Uh, I had a daughter and uh, a son on the way. Wow. Okay, so you're a young father at, at 29. Uh, you relocate from Detroit and GM, the biggest company in the world, uh, to go to a startup with how many people? Oh, we probably had, I would say, 30 or 40. And and what was your what was the job you were hired for? Chief operating officer. So basically, I had everything but the um, finance side. So you get to this company, and um, was it great? Did it was it the right decision? Well, uh, it was like running a race and being ready to cross the finish line, getting smacked in the face with a two two by four. Because on day two, uh, the CEO goes, "Keith, we have a board meeting coming up in a few days, and I want you to say that." Say what? Uh, she wanted me to uh, say how well we were doing, and I had seen that we weren't, and and. Uh, and I said to her, I said, that would be lying. I will not say that. And right at that moment, I get that warm burning pit in my stomach that goes, I just made the biggest mistake of my life. Wait, she, the, the, the CEO wanted you to essentially mislead, mislead the, the board, board about how well you were doing. Yeah. And you, and you didn't want to do this because that's – first of all, that's, 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 you could go to jail for that. Uh, but, I didn't even think about yeah. that. I just thought about. I was just thinking about. It's just wrong. Yeah, yeah. You could be sued for it. Yeah, it's just it, it's lying. And and did you so so pretty soon after you arrived, you relocated to Silicon Valley to join the startup. You realized you had made a mistake. Yep. How worried were you about that mistake? I was terrified. So. On one hand, um, I had never really quit anything in my life without completing the mission. I felt like I completed the mission in GMF Robotics. And on the other hand, I wasn't living my values every day. So I was torn. I was there for nine months. And it was the worst time period of my life. Why? Uh, because I was torn. And, and I think my best friend, put it uh, the best way. He said, Croc, if you have your enthusiasm, you're an A+. plus. If you don't, you're a D- minus at best. And my heart wasn't into it because I just knew that this was wrong. And I, and I thought I could change it too. And I had some great people working for me and I, and I hired a bunch of folks. And I thought, I thought it could be changed. So did you, was there a point where you thought, I got to go back to GM? Uh, you know what? Uh, I, there wasn't because for me there was no going back, and probably if nothing else, probably for sheer pride, because um, it was such a big deal uh, when I left. And I mean, I didn't burn any bridges or anything like that, but I just couldn't picture myself going back. So, nine months—you lasted nine months there. What was the what was the final straw? What was the thing that made you just be fired or quit? Yeah, well, it was. It was the day that my oldest son was being born, and um, and IBM was coming in on a big visit that day, and I remember being at the hospital because I w wanted to be there for the birth, and I kept getting calls from the CEO, oh, you got to come in. Yeah, no, I'm not coming in. Um, you know, I'm not going to miss my eyes. And, and then finally, after the third time, I told the CEO to do something that's anatomically impossible to do. And I said, I quit. So you don't have a job. And I, did, and I don't have a job. <laughs> and I'm eating down on the cash reserves. Yeah, you mean, know, another baby's born. Yeah. I mean, presumably you had a little bit of money in the bank, but not enough to Yeah, not a lot. More than a few months. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you had to find a new job. Yeah, I did. And I really didn't know, you know, a lot of people out in Silicon Valley because I had been so heads down focused, not like uh, Detroit. So what was your approach? How did you start to think about finding your next gig? You know, back in those days, uh, what you know, people weren't using email. And uh, so I'm firing off letters to headhunters. I go to the Harvard alumni, the Purdue alumni, every nook and cranny. You're I mean, sending it was physical letters in the mail. Physical letters in the mail. So what was the turning point? How did you how did you f- get a lead that actually was promising? Yeah, it just happened to be a guy I didn't know. He was a uh, Harvard Business School graduate, a guy named Chuck Chan. He worked for a venture capital company, and he was kind enough to have lunch with me. And he said, hey, there might be a company that's interested in you. It was just started by three IBM PhDs, and they are uh, creating a software product that, if they can do it, is going to revolutionize mechanical engineering design. And they're looking for a good business guy. And so that's when I met the guys at Rasna. And uh, I came in there as the chief operating officer. And, hmm. and I remember they were showing me what, what they could do. And I knew right away. And, and the biggest market for it was automotive. And I go, how uh, how far away are you guys from having a shippable product? Yeah. And they go, well, six months. Well, that's when I first learned software development is 2X plus N, you know. How long, how much time? So really it was more like? Uh, a little over two years. And and they were developing the software, which you believed, if it worked, could be revolutionary, yeah. especially in automotive. Yeah. Uh, how, how much money did they have? It was seed funded by a bunch of venture capitalists right after the product came out we started running out of money and we had already tapped these guys and we couldn't get any from really any vcs and obviously our credibility is not that great because we were so late on on the uh, product delivery and uh that's when i said well uh let's go to japan <laughs> because i you know i'd spent so much time in japan yeah. with gmf robotics and at that time those guys were invested in silicon valley companies so we went over to, and one of the companies we met with was Kubota. They're like the John Deere of Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put a business plan in front of them, a three-year business plan. They said, we don't do three-year business plans. We do 20-year business plans. Wow. And we, we raised $10 million from How did the company do once the product was out in the market? It took a while, but then all of a sudden, the business really started taking off. We were, I think, number four in it. Inc. 500 fastest growing companies. We're all set to go public. Morgan Stanley is going to take us uh, public. And then one of our other partners, Parametric Technology, we're having a meeting with them and they go, how do we deepen the partnership? You know, and they go, well, let's just take it all the way. I go, yeah, let's just take it all the way. And uh, what are you guys talking about? Well, hey, you know, how about we buy you? You guys don't need investment backers, you know, all that. And it was like we were – and we had built a great culture. Um, it was just – it was an amazing company. So we came out of the meeting with uh, the PTC execs and uh, I go, hey, we can't sell this thing. We're, we're you know, we're taking it public. We Everybody's pumped. I don't know, you know, let's see uh, how much they offer. Uh, you yeah. Know, it was you did really not want to sell it. No, I wanted but, to keep it going. And and But the CEO wanted to sell it. Yeah, I did. And how big was that dispute between the two of you? Well, you know what? Uh, we just, we we had a great relationship. We were partners. So it was, it was not fire and brimstone. And it was really a very logical discussion. But at the end of the day, too, he was the CEO. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. So when you walked, so when, when the company was sold, I have to assume that at that point, you were financially in great shape for the, probably the first time in your life. Y- yes, and it was more money than I ever dreamed of making. I remember calling uh, back to my mom in Ohio, and I go, hey, mom, we sold Razna, and it's like, uh, well, did you make money? I go, ma, I don't have to work anymore, and we had two phones in the house, and I would always hear my dad click in when, upstairs when my mom was talking, and, and he goes, I guess this means you're moving back to Ohio. My dad goes, Elda, I don't think he's ever moving back. Coming up in just a moment, how Keith Kroc's dad was right. Keith not only stayed in Silicon Valley, but he decided to get back into a leadership role again and again. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 1996, and it's been a year since Keith Kroc and his team sold the software company Razna. And financially, he was set for life. He took about six months off. He dabbled in venture capital. And then he and a few friends came up with a new idea, getting into business-to-business e-commerce. And even in the late 1990s, most of those transactions were analog. So Keith and his friends decided to make software to move this entire process online. The idea came one night when I had a few beers with the guys and we would talk about how frustrating it was working with the uh, purchasing guys when, when we were trying to sell Razna software because it always gets stuck you know, in purchasing. I said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we make software for the purchasing guys? Yeah. And... Uh, and that's when we started Ariba. Yeah. I mean, I think I think within three years of its launch, Ariba was worth like $4 billion after it went public. Right. Wow. And and, and you actually, and you remained the, the CEO, what, for another four years after that? Yeah. I'm just curious, during that time, what were like some of the anxieties and pressures that you felt as CEO? Well, I th- you know, a great example was... This is back when marketplaces were really big and we were doing $40, $50 million deals. And we had put together an automotive marketplace with General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. And actually with Rick Wagner, my my old boss. And at the last minute, our number one competitor came in and offered them 19% equity in the, in the company. And, uh, you know, Rick goes, hey, if you offer, you know, the same amount of equity in Ariba... And it's like, hey, you know, that's basically being a subsidiary. I don't want to be a subsidiary of General Motors. Essentially, they were saying, hey, if you want us to work with you, if you want us to buy your 
product, you've got to let us own some of your company. Is that, is that essentially what you're so saying? So much so that, in essence, you would be a subsidiary. And I remember um, that next morning, and I flick on CNBC, and I see Ariba's stock price. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it went down 20 points. Just because? One goes up 20 points. Because they announced the big deal. deal. Yeah, they announced the big deal. Your, your stock price is plunging. Your competitor's pr- stock prices is yeah. going through the roof, and you it's on you. Yeah, and I'm and I'm and and that's the feeling where it's like, oh God, man, I just want to lie in bed in the fetal position, you know. Um, and that was especially uh, uh, bitter because uh, we had kind of got the thing going. It was General Motors. I mean, um, and probably your board saying, "Hey, you you work there. You probably know all these guys. Yeah. You can make this. You can make this happen." Yeah, I know. And you're feeling like I let them down. Yeah, but you made the right. Business decision. Oh yeah, and by the way, and every and everybody was supportive of it. But um, you know, when you're a public company CEO, uh, people look at that stock price a lot, and they uh, don't know the story behind they don't the know stock the, price. They don't know the story behind it. Yeah, because uh, you couldn't go out there to the public and say, "Hey, hey, wait, let me explain to you what happened." Right. You just had to watch that stock price plummet, and for an uh, an institutional investor. Twenty percent of your stock price—that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Um, so you know, it's it's things like that. I also remember when uh, after Y two K, enterprise spending uh, slowed down, and uh, we had been cash flow positive since our second quarter of existence, which is uh, pretty amazing for an enterprise company, right? And so I remember going to the board meeting. And I said, uh, by a show of hands, how many board members have been involved in a layoff? Whether you've laid people off, been laid off, been on a board, everybody raised their hand. I go, by a show of fingers, uh, how many uh, layoffs have you experienced? So I go around the room, I count them, 39 layoff experiences. And I said, okay, by a show of fingers, how many times did you ever say, shoot, we cut too deep? Not one finger went up. I said... Guys, we're you know we're we're gonna cut deep. Like how how deep did you have to cut? Oh, I think we pro- it was probably thirty percent of wow. the workforce. Because I mean, basically the the, the dot com bubble burst, and I, I guess presumably all of a sudden your business slowed down significantly. Yeah, yeah, and by the way, it did for everybody. I mean, I mean, how many actual people was thirty percent gonna be? It was probably about a thousand people. So we took a, our business development organization from 200 people down to two. We tried to preserve the engineers and the sales guys. You had to cut 1,000 people from the workforce. Yeah. And you had to make that announcement as a CEO. As a CEO. And I remember going from office to office around the world, um, as many as I could, and literally recite the serenity prayer. And by the way, and also with... Um, in those offices, guys who knew, knew they were going to be laid off. Uh, and that was probably one of the hardest business things I've ever had to do, but probably one of the best business things I've ever done. Well, let me ask about the hard part before I ask about the best part. The hard part I can absolutely understand. I mean, these are people's livelihoods. They, they, they depend on this paycheck and you are the – you're the – the symbol of this to a lot of people. That's right. How were you able to just cope with the the psychological hurdle of just having to literally do it? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's uh, – if it is to be, it's up to me. And I also knew that the worst thing you could do is death by a thousand cuts. And that is, oh, okay, maybe it's not that bad. We'll do a little bit, boom, a little bit, a little bit, boom, boom, boom. That's what Commerce One did, and they went out of business. And I remember um, uh, we would have a quarterly all-hands meeting, and the business wasn't that great. And so the presentation I used to make is I'd I'd compare ourselves to our competition, and I call them the we suck less slides. You know, I mean, okay, we're not doing good, but but we're doing way better than those other guys. The whole industry was in crisis. Yeah. What what would have happened if you didn't make that cut, the thirty percent cut? But it that just takes a toll um, 
on the morale because the fear is the fear of the unknown. And it's like, oh, God, when's it coming next? You know, you're just always looking over your shoulder. Mm. And that's why um, I said, hey, look, you know, we're going we're gonna to cut deep. So you, uh, so you, so this sounds like you, you have this period where you've got to deal with layoffs, and you know, just the kind of the putting out the daily fires. I mean, it, it sounds like when you're when you're running a company, whether it's Ariba or, or, or DocuSign, which you went on to run later, it's like waking up, turning on Bloomberg or CNBC, and like that kind of that determines whether you're going to have a good day or a bad day. Well, the key is is. Uh, to try not to let that happen. And I think if there's anything you learn to, during these transformational times and during adversity is don't get too high on the highs or too low on the lows. You are there as the CEO and then you decide to step down in 2003. Why? I was kind of getting burned out. Plus, I really wanted to spend some time focusing with my uh, family. I mean, the market cap of the company got up to $40 billion. We were going Mach 3 with our hair on fire. We started on in 96. Um, and, uh, you know, it was I, I wanted to find a successor. I had a great chief operating officer, a great number two guy, but he didn't end up to be a great number one guy. They so, brought him on when you left? Well, I stayed on as the chairman. Yeah. So he... Uh, he was my successor, and uh, we made that announcement. You know, we've been public for a number of years. Yep. And um, uh, and then exactly one quarter later, um, we have the board meeting, the earnings calls the next day, and uh, and John Mumford, I'll never forget, um, one of the board members, yeah. mm-hmm. and a partner at Crosspoint, he goes, Croc, you have the wrong shoes on today. And I go, John, what do you mean, the wrong shoes? He goes, you should be wearing your cowboy boots. I go, my cowboy boots? What are you talking about? He goes, you're going to get back on this horse. And and, and I, I did not want to get back on that horse. You came out of that board meeting and, and you were the CEO again. Yep. And did you... Did you even consult with your wife or anything? Were you able to? Uh, yeah, I said, hey, I'm the CEO guy. <laughs> but you didn't want to do that. You thought you were out. Yeah. They were essentially saying, listen, you got to come back. Yeah. And, I, and, and I, I knew it was, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, um, but I knew that I had to. So um, got out of the board meeting, let them go. We had the earnings call the next morning back then, you know. Um, you do it early in the morning, so it's like, you know, six in the morning. And then you do the, you know, Bloomberg TV, CNBC, CNN Financial, you know, Fox Financial. And it's like kaboom. So I, I'll never forget coming out of that board meeting. I'm just going, whoa. You had a succession plan. You had this this person in mind who you liked and, and was probably very qualified. And was it just a, a personality clash? People didn't? weren't able to or was there was there a manage a deeper management no issue? i th- i think it was one of those things where he was a super super um driver and probably not as empathetic um uh that you need to be when you're the ceo what what were the the biggest differences in your company between being COO and CEO. All the responsibility um, lies with you. I mean, being COO, there's still somebody up there who, you know, takes on a lot of that, you know, the strategic responsibility, all that and financial. But I always say CEO is being the loneliest job in town. And um, because you can't really talk about your, with your executive team, the board doesn't have time to uh, be a psychologist or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, you you sort of, when you run a public company, right, there are all these competing constituencies. Yeah. And how do you know which one to, I mean, there's the board, there's your employees, there's the shareholders. How do you know who to focus on and when to focus on them? Or, or do you not really know? Well, um, you have to have uh, 
a true north. And I think true north, it always begins with the customer. But you have to understand that the thing that makes the customer successful are the people in the company. So those are really the focus. The stock price, um, uh, that'll take care of itself depending on how well you're doing with customers. And that depends how well you're doing with the employees. So I always looked at that um, as the core um, because everything else is a, is a result of that. <laughs> so you eventually do are able to leave Ariba. When they, when they, when they actually call you back to run it uh, temporarily, how long did that last? Oh, I think that lasted uh, only about six months or something like that. So eventually you are able to leave leave. Yep. And did you take another break? I did. I, I took a I took a long break, um, six years or so, and um, it was a great time in my life. Um, I, I had recently been divorced, and um, I raised my my three kids two weeks on, two weeks off. So, hmm. so half the time I was a soccer dad, packing lunches, making hot breakfast. All of that. And then the other two weeks, that was more kind of business, Keith. And with that, that was a time period when um, I was able to give back to um, organizations that have done so much for me. And and one of those uh, was the Simakai fraternity, and I was the international president of that. And then, and then also be the chairman of the board of trustees at Purdue. Hmm. Um, where we really transformed um, the largest engineering school in the country. You could have basically done that for the rest of your life. You had plenty of money. You were, you know, you could become a philanthropist. And 2009, you get approached by a company called DocuSign to go work there. What, what, what's the story behind that? Why did you? Well, um, you know, I was sitting on a bunch of boards and doing that stuff, and and I got an itch um, because I felt like I was a a mile wide and in, in an inch deep. And so when I first saw DocuSign, I said, well, you know, probably most people are going to think this could be a feature of Adobe. But I looked at it as this is one of the biggest markets I've ever seen because every company, every organization is a potential customer. Every department is a potential cu- customer. Yeah, Every person's a potential uh, end user, and we can build a two-sided network just like we did at Ariba with buyers and suppliers. We can do it with businesses and consumers, and and just to just to clarify, I mean, DocuSign obviously makes it easier to sign documents electronically. But what was it about that you saw that and you you thought, my God, this is revolutionary? I mean, is that what you thought? Uh, yes, and I also thought, um, I know exactly the play to run. It's hmm. it's add what we you know what we did to Ariba, add water and stir. So one of the things that we did is right out of the gate we're doing partnerships with the big potential new entrants. When you look at the companies that invest in us, it was all those companies. It was Visa. It was FedEx, Deutsche Telekom, Intel, Dell. So just if I understand this correctly, essentially what you did was you went to companies that could be potential clients, customers who would use the product and you said, become our investors. And obviously as investors they could also become your customers because it would be good for everybody. That's right. And our partners. So it was really go the the most powerful technology companies in the world. And that was your strategy from the beginning. This is how we're going to raise the money by going to our potential. It wasn't necessarily this is how we're going to raise the money, Mm. but this is how we're going to block potential new entrants. Wow. And, And some of them, for example, they started off as investors and then they became customers, but most of them were... Uh, big customers already. Microsoft was our biggest customer, and we had a big partnership with them. And then on the last round, they came in and invested. I mean, it seems like that this product was perfectly designed to take that approach, right? A uh, quarter of our strategy was to thrive in a heterogeneous market so we could become the Switzerland. This was a winner-take-all market. So here, here's my question. I mean, you had full financial independence, personal independence. You didn't have to answer to anybody. All of a sudden, you become the CEO of another company and you are essentially the board. I mean, that those are your bosses. Like all of a sudden, 
you have to become accountable to a group of people again. They can make your life miserable. They can call you at all hours. That you're watching the the business shows again. Um, there, there must be something about that that you I don't know. There's like an addictive quality to it, or you. What was it that you wanted to to do? What attracted you to getting back into this arena? Yeah. Well, I, I, I would definitely say I'm a, addicted to the adrenaline rush, but I think more than that, um, what I love is I love transformation. I think change is the most powerful word in any language without change. You don't develop, prosper, or grow a, as an individual, so it's kind of like you're, you're either moving or you're stagnant. But what I love is uh, transformational leadership where you can challenge the status quo. Uh, by mobilizing and energizing and unifying a group of people uh, to achieve a noble mission mm-hmm. that will have a profound and far-reaching impact. And if you look at DocuSign, I mean, it's changed the way business is being done, how people live their lives. You know, the same the same with Ariba, um, same in the robotics area. You know, that's the thing that I really um, enjoy is I love the challenge of those transformations. I learned so much. And um, the other thing is I always like to say, how could you do this differently? Um, yeah, I think that's that that's that could be an addiction. I mean, one of the key sort of roles of a CEO, especially at a public company, is is as a talent spotter, is picking the right people around you. I have to assume that you didn't always make the right choices. You must have picked people at high levels that you fell in love with quickly and then it just wasn't the right fit. What, what did you what, – what, did that ever happen? And, oh, and, of course it did. And how it, did you – Of course it did. And I, you know, I think if you ask CEOs, you know, what are, you, what are your top five mistakes? Um, you know, four of the five top mistakes was, was in this critical area. Of talent, because as a CEO, your number one uh, focus is building a high-performance team. I would always spend one third of my time recruiting, uh, hiring, indoctrinating uh, new talent, and and you have to constantly upgrade as you're uh, scaling a company. Because just because somebody's good at the early growth stage doesn't mean they're they're going to be good, you know, once it's scaled to mega size. And, and there's no formula, right? I mean, it's a, it, even with instinct, you can be wrong, right? I mean, people... Oh, you can, you, you can always be wrong. And I think what it is, though, there's pattern recognition over time. And um, I've always been a people collector and have infinite patience for people being a, a, a student of human nature. But there's also a lot of hard work that goes in. I'm, I'm a fanatical reference checker, you know, because you get to ask all kinds of what questions. What do you ask when you're, when you're looking for a high-level person, a critical job around you? What do you ask the references? Um, well, I'll tell you how I end with everyone is what's the best way to work with this person so when they hit the ground, that is a big one. What you really want to do is you want to get to somebody's core and see why they have drive and do they have a great set of values and do does their compass point true north and are they a team player? Are, are they non-self-righteous? Keith, when you think about the arc of your career, do you think that you were born naturally born a leader, that you had these natural skills, or do you think it's something that you developed over time? Yeah, I don't think I was born with it. I think it I think it happens over time and I think it comes from jumping in water over your head. And um, you know, sometimes you get thrown in water. Sometimes you don't even know the water's over your head. But um I I think you develop, you know, those set of skills, you know, I would say that it would be Time multiplied by the velocity you live life, parentheses around it, squared the adversity you you encounter. So, um, you know, if if you're just going in there being a maintenance manager or a transactional leader, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to sharpen the saw uh, to the level if you jump in and, and go, hey, we're gonna do something that's never been done. 
we're going to scale this thing. We're going to go Mach 3 with our hair on fire. You know, we're going to make this world a better place in some way, shape, or form. That's Keith Kroc. Last year, DocuSign went public, and as of January of 2019, Keith transitioned out of his role as chairman. He now plans to spend most of his time working with the Kroc Family Foundation. Thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.